Hi everyone. It's such a joy and a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you today on this Resurrection Sunday. In our service so far, we've already had read to us a number of passages that describe the events of that very first Easter, a description of what took place. But now I'd like us to turn to a passage of Scripture that describes something of the significance of what took place. Not just what happened, but what what happened means to us. In his second letter to the Christians in Corinth, chapters 4 and 5, Paul describes something, not everything, but something, of the significance of the resurrection of Jesus for our own lives today. Let's have a look. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5 through to chapter 5 and verse 10. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is so much that we could look at in these verses, but I'd like us to see three primary things from this passage. Here in these verses, Paul describes the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact, as a future hope, and as a present power. Firstly, we see in this passage the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact. Have a look at verse 14. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is at the heart of Christian believing and preaching. In his first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 15, Paul writes, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. We're going to see in a moment how we can draw strength from the resurrection in our own lives right now, but we can only draw strength from the resurrection if it actually happened. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then our hope and our faith are utterly futile. Paul believed that Jesus rose from the dead because of the fact that he'd seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ for himself. That took place after Jesus' ascension in a special act of revelation to Paul. But Paul also had the testimony of other eyewitnesses. Again, he mentions these in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. We don't have time this morning to have a look at all the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The evidence is out there. Two books in particular are especially helpful in this regard. There is Frank Morrison's book, Who Moved the Stone? And more recently, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. What makes these books particularly meaningful is that both these authors originally sat down to write a book disproving once and for all that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. But both writers, having carefully looked at all of the evidence, ended up writing books outlining how the evidence points to the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. 
if we were to have a look at just one piece of evidence, it would have to be the transformation of the men and women who Paul mentions in these verses. We just have no other explanation for their changed lives. We cannot explain how good Jewish men and women who'd had it drummed into their minds their whole lives, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, how they could ever have come to worship Jesus as Lord and God. We cannot explain how Christianity spread throughout the known world of that time, how Gentiles moved from worshipping idols to worshipping the living God. We cannot explain the spread of Christianity throughout the world to this day, changing the entire course of human history. We cannot explain it apart from the fact that these men and women believed that Jesus was alive. As one New Testament scholar puts it, no other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering scepticism against the Christian witness that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and worldviews were transformed. Paul himself gave up the rest of his life to preach this good news that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and eventually he gave his life, was executed by order of the Emperor Nero for believing that Jesus rose from the dead. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, the resurrection as historical fact. Secondly, the resurrection as a future hope. Verse 14 again. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. This is the Christian hope, that one day you and I will see Jesus and we will be with him and with all those whom we love, who know and love Jesus, and we will be with him and them for eternity. And this hope is so important to us where we find ourselves today in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. This coronavirus has brought into sharp relief a truth that we usually ignore or deny or suppress, that at any moment we could lose family members or colleagues or even our own lives to death. Let's have a look at some of the things that Paul says about the resurrection as a future hope. In verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. You may remember that Paul himself was a tent maker by profession, and he well knew that tents are only temporary accommodation. Tents are not particularly impressive either. When you go camping, you don't take a couch and put it in your tent. You don't hang an oil painting on the side of the tent. A tent isn't supposed to be your permanent home. And Paul says here that if our earthly tent, our body, which is fragile and temporary, if, or rather when, it is destroyed, we have an eternal house in heaven. 
Paul isn't describing the mansions that Jesus spoke of. In my father's house are many rooms, as real and as certain as those are. Rather, he's speaking about the fact that we have a permanent resurrection body, like Jesus' own resurrection body. And our resurrection body is permanent and glorious, as superior to our earthly body as a house is superior to a tent. Paul is so certain that this is true that he speaks of this future reality in the present tense. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. This idea of a glorious, renewed, invigorated, indestructible, revitalized, energized body is of great comfort to those of us whose bodies and minds are beginning to show signs of wear and tear. This is a reality of life that Paul describes in verse 16, where he says, outwardly, we are wasting away. I guess if you're 25 and haven't yet had major surgery or sports injury or ill health, the concept of decay might be totally foreign to you. But as we get older, this concept of decay becomes a grim and even a frightening reality. In his commentary on this passage, Pastor Paul Beasley Murray says this, One of the things we dread about death is that it seems to diminish us. Even the process that leads to death is often one of shrinkage. We lose weight. We become bent over. Our skin and flesh seem to shrivel. Our hair begins to drop out, as do our teeth. Virtually every bodily function slackens in its efficiency. In the face of such reduction, it is a struggle to cling to full selfhood. Our egos wane to the point where they scarcely cast a shadow. We are no longer what we were. As we watch our human tent begin to fray and unravel and finally to split at the seams, we feel that our personhood is seeping out and running away. Nakedness is what we fear. We worry that we shall be embarrassingly unclothed. That is, we fear being incomplete, not whole, lacking in some essentials of personality. But there is no need to have that fear. Death will lead to wholeness, Paul says. We shall not be naked, for God will clothe us with a new body. And it's not just a house that we will receive. When Paul speaks about the resurrection as a future hope, he speaks about a home. Verse 8. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. For a Christian, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. In fact, throughout the rest of the New Testament, again and again, Paul describes death for a Christian as falling asleep. When my girls were a lot younger, they would sometimes fall asleep in the strangest places. Sometimes they would be spread across the couch or lying on the floor, one time, Sarah even fell asleep with her chin on the kitchen table. Sometimes they weren't even at our house. They fell asleep at church or at a friend's house. But what happened? I would pick them up in my arms and carry them to their beds. And the next thing that they would be aware of would be waking up at home. For a Christian to be absent from the body is to be 
at home with the Lord. And then finally, in regard to this future hope, Paul says that all of this, our renewed body, being at home with the Lord, being with all of those who know and love Jesus, all of this, Paul says, goes on for eternity. In verse 1 of chapter 5, he speaks about an eternal home. And in verse 18 of chapter 4, he says, For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The New Testament scholar Paul Barnett puts it this way in his commentary on these verses. To our minds, this present existence is solid and real, whereas our coming existence seems shadowy and insubstantial. Paul teaches us that the reverse is true. Our future eternal existence with God is a true existence. This one is only a shadow cast by the coming reality. The Cambridge professor and former atheist C.S. Lewis also used this idea of shadow in his writings. He referred to this earthly life as the Shadowlands. You may remember the movie of his life starring Anthony Hopkins simply called Shadowlands. If you've never read C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, you may want to close your ears at this point because I'm about to spoil not just the end of one book, but the end of the entire series. In the final book, The Last Battle, Peter, Edmund and Lucy, who have unexpectedly been caught up into the land of Narnia, suddenly realise that they have in fact died and are now going to permanently enter Aslan's world, Aslan being the great lion who represents Jesus in the books. This is how Lewis describes it. Then Aslan turned to the children and said, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. And that wasn't just something poetic that Lewis made up out of his own imagination. It's based on this biblical truth seen in this passage and in Romans chapter 13, where Paul says, The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. The resurrection as a sure and certain eternal future hope. 
But I think it's so important to see that not only is the resurrection a historical fact that took place in the past, not only is the resurrection a hope for the future, Paul describes the resurrection as a present power. Now, the Corinthian Christians were really into power. Many of them believed that Jesus' death and resurrection had already brought them all of the fullness and the power of the final kingdom of God now. Some of them even believed that there would be no resurrection of the dead because in accepting Jesus, they were already seated in heavenly realms. Paul describes some of their thinking in 1 Corinthians 4 where he writes, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You've begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you'd really begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. The Corinthians were aided in this belief by some new Christian teachers who were preaching a particular brand of power religion. Paul refers to them in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 as super apostles. These men were no apostles at all, but rather false teachers who were out to make money from the gospel, who taught that real Christian witness was authenticated by dramatic spirituality, intense feelings miracles, new revelations from God. And these super apostles, and under their influence, the Corinthian Christians themselves, looked at Paul and they looked at the fact that he was constantly getting beaten up and put in prison and shipwrecked and being stoned. They considered the fact that he was unimpressive in his looks and that he wasn't trained as a great orator. And they asked, what kind of an apostle is that? What kind of Christian witness is that? Where's the power? And so one of the main reasons that Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians is in order to redefine their understanding of gospel power. True power is seen in weakness. Have a look again from verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry about in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Notice then in these verses that Paul refuses to separate the cross and the resurrection. He keeps the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus closely side by side. And friends, we need to do the same. If we only stress the death of Jesus in our lives, then we're in danger of falling into pessimism that leads to complacency. We read a passage like this about weakness and think that none of God's power is available here and now. If, on the other hand, we only stress the resurrection of Jesus in our lives and think that his full power is available right now, then we can fall into an optimistic triumphalism, which can lead to presumption and even illusion, faking it to impress others, and ultimately to disillusionment. So we always need to keep both Jesus' death and his resurrection side by side in our lives. 
The New Testament scholar Richard Hayes points out that when we do this, we have an odd capacity for simultaneous joy amid suffering and yet impatience with things as they are. Let's look at what Paul has to say about this present resurrection power. Firstly, Paul says that God uses weakness to show his glory. Weakness, then, is not a sign of a lack of faith, but it's an opportunity for us to experience God's resurrection power in our lives. Paul began his letter to the Corinthians by saying, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. All the difficulties that Paul experienced were opportunities to experience God's power to help him keep on going. Paul, in fact, draws his letter to an end in chapter 12 by speaking about his thorn in the flesh, as if Paul didn't have enough to deal with, with beatings and imprisonments. He also had a personal difficulty, the exact nature of which we're not told. But this is what he says. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I think there's such an important pattern there. Notice that Paul experiences God's power in weakness even as he prays for that weakness to be taken away altogether. I wonder today what kinds of overwhelming difficulties you might be experiencing. Perhaps it's sickness. Perhaps it's grief. Perhaps it's a difficult job. Perhaps it's a difficult marriage. You've come to the end of your own resources, the end of your own wisdom, the end of your own insight, the end of your own strength, the end of your finances. This is now an opportunity to turn to God and find his power at work in your weakness. Secondly, we see in this passage that God's power transforms weakness so that our weaknesses can make us holy. Verse 17 for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This is a glorious truth. As a pastor, I've often had the distressing privilege of visiting people on their deathbeds. I've been with people who've lain for months, slowly fading away. Within our own congregation, we have several folk who have dementia and who have lost touch with the world around them, and it's been like that for years. And often when I visited those folk, I will read these words from Second Corinthians. I visited recently with a man in the last stages of dementia. He could recognize his family, he could sing the words of amazing grace, 
When I read scripture with him, he would repeat it with me from memory. But that was all. The world would look at that man with pity, with horror, with derision. They might even ask the question, what is the point? Why is he even alive? Wouldn't it be better for him to die and be with Jesus? And yet in that distressing situation, I remind myself and I remind those around him who are caring for him, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. God is at work in this man. His being able to recognize the name of Jesus and recite scripture is more precious than all the wealth of the world and is more wise than the intelligence of the smartest PhD. And oh yes, this is distressing, but God is doing something here. This dementia is light and temporary, yet it achieves a weight of glory that is eternal. And thirdly, God uses weakness to advance his gospel. Verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You see, if the gospel message came through a preacher who was articulate and skilled and witty and sharp, it might be that in years to come, those whose lives had been changed might say to themselves, well, maybe I was just caught up in the moment. Maybe it was just the vibe of the meeting that made me commit my life to Christ. But no, the gospel comes from weak men and women to show that its power is from God and not from mere human beings. In June 1958, the great British preacher John Stott led an eight-day evangelistic mission at the University of Sydney, Australia, the first seven days went very well, and a good number of people responded to John's invitation. But on the last night of the campaign, which was intended to be the highlight of the week, John was scheduled to preach in the Great Hall of the University, which seated about a thousand people. But there was a problem. John had caught a bug that almost deprived him of the use of his voice. Just before the meeting, some of the student leaders met with him, and he asked that one of them would read 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The students read that verse, and then they prayed that those words might be fulfilled in John that night. This is how John Stott describes what happened. The hall was absolutely packed with, I guess, a thousand students. And there was an air of excited expectation, but I'd lost my voice. I could only croak my address like a raven into the microphone in a monotone. I was utterly unable to modulate my voice or, for that matter, assert my personality in any way. It was embarrassing in the extreme. It was a pathetic display of human weakness. But when the time came to issue an invitation to the students to respond to the gospel, there was an immediate and eager response. I've been back in Australia ten times since then, and it's true to tell you that every time I've gone back, somebody has come up to me somewhere and has said to me, do you remember that final night of the mission in the Great Hall of the University of Sydney when you lost your voice? And I've replied, indeed I remember. 
How can I possibly forget? Well, they would go on. I came to Christ that night. We've looked at the resurrection as a historical fact. The resurrection as a future hope and the resurrection as a present power that can transform our lives now. As we close, let's look at three applications, three things that we are urged to do in the light of all of this. Firstly, Paul says that we are confident. In verse 6 of chapter 5, he says, Therefore we are always confident. In verse 8, he repeats it, We are confident, I say. In verse 8 of chapter 4, he says, We are not in despair. In verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. You see, if even my difficulties are achieving for me an eternal glory, if when I die I will be with Jesus and those I love forever, then I have absolutely nothing to fear. I am completely safe and secure and nothing can ultimately hurt me. It's a bit like what happens in those science fiction movies where the hero doesn't have to fear anything because he or she knows that they can't die. I was trying to come up with a good example of this from the movies. Maybe if you have a better example, you could share it with me afterwards. But the best that I could come up with was the movie Jumanji, uh, the latest version, not the original one with Robin Williams. If you've watched the movie, you will know that four children get sucked into a video game. And in one sense, they know that they are ultimately safe because they cannot die. Well, here's where the illustration breaks down a little bit, because they do have three lives. And once their final life is gone, they will die. But while they have these three lives, these three bars on their wrists, they don't have to be afraid of being eaten by a hippopotamus or pushed off a cliff or being shot or being trampled by a rhino or being bitten by a poisonous snake. They're completely safe in this world and they can do the most outrageous things that usually would have terrified them. And in a similar way, because we know that one day we will see Jesus face to face and spend eternity with him, we don't have to fear trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As we look around our world in the middle of a global pandemic, as we see the horrific things that are taking place in the nations of the world and even within our own country, we can confidently say today that this is a great time to be serving the Lord. It's not a time to lose heart. Secondly, Paul says that we are to fix our eyes on what is unseen. Verse 18 of chapter 4, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It's a lovely paradox. We fix our eyes on what is unseen. And this links to our first application. The way to be always confident, the way not to lose heart, is to fix my eyes on what is unseen. That means spending time with God each day, reading his word, praying to him, it means joining with others during the week and on Sundays, studying the Bible, discussing it, joining together in corporate worship. All of those activities are little doses of reality therapy. We remind ourselves and one another that this world is just the shadow of a coming eternal reality. And thirdly, 
Paul says we make it our aim to please him. The last few verses of our passage. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is done for us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We don't need to fear the judgment seat of Christ as Christians because God declares us to be righteous in Christ. And out of God's declaration of who we are, we then seek to please him in every way. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, being confident and secure in him, frees us to live a life that can bring a smile to the face of God. The American missionary, Jim Elliott, who was killed by Orca Indians in Central America, once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. As we leave this Easter weekend, may our prayer be the same as that of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Amen.